Hello there, folks. Greetings and welcome, finally, to another episode of the Undercover Bubble Podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Moore, and I'd like to thank you very much for joining me once again to take a deep dive into this interesting thing that we call the conservative media bubble. And I'm very excited today because after an admittedly unplanned month or so long hiatus in doing this show, I finally get to come back and talk about a subject that I've wanted to talk about since the beginning of this podcast, or should I say the relaunching of this podcast, and that is bias in the media. Yes, I know that this podcast is all sort of about bias in the media, specifically bias in one side of media coverage of issues, but what I want to talk about today is a little bit more general than that. So I'm going to be talking a lot about things that aren't happening in the bubble today, but Wait until the very end, I will bring the bubble back into it, and it will be a very important lesson that we all need to learn if we want to be able to sort of spot and be able to defeat things that the conservative media bubble might push on the mainstream news. And yes, I am aware that a lot of, shall we say, interesting things have happened in the conservative media bubble over the last month, especially as we get closer and closer to the midterms, but I'll get into all that in the coming episodes that I'm hopefully going to be doing more of as we get closer to the midterms, because I know how important of a time this is, both for the bubble in general to push their narrative and for democracy itself. Because as I've already said multiple times on this show, these upcoming midterms will be essentially a referendum on whether or not America wants to stay democratic. So I will get to that in future episodes, but today I want to talk about a subject that I've wanted to discuss, as I said, ever since I started this new version of Undercover Bubble, and that is one of my personally longtime favorite news networks, CNN. And CNN has been around for literally longer than I've been alive. They were started in 1980 by Ted Turner as the first real 24-hour all-news channel. And I will admit that they, historically, at least in the last 10 years or so, have had a tendency to be a bit overdramatic when it comes to what they consider breaking news or big news and sort of catapulting what otherwise might not be a big issue into the stratosphere. This is something that CNN has always done, and I admit that. But Otherwise, their coverage, for the most part, over the course of their 40-year history, has been pretty legit. And actually, they are, the, believe it or not, the most viewed news outlet online, even more than Fox and MSNBC and the New York Times and any other online outlet. Even though they have been lagging behind in the ratings behind Fox and MSNBC, but the reason for that isn't because of their coverage or their quality or anything like that, the main reason that I believe that they haven't had good ratings in the last specifically 10-15 years is the same reason that made it a good news channel, which was that it wasn't biased. It didn't try to paint political events and happenings in the world in a light that sort of furthered whatever narrative that the bosses wanted to push. Instead, CNN was just CNN. They were a cable news network. They wanted to show you what was happening in the world without having to worry about any sort of narrative being set. CNN simply said, we are CNN. 
we report the news in an objective manner and we let the viewers make their own decisions on what they want to think about it. And honestly, I think that was really CNN's primary draw in the beginning was that it didn't try to set a narrative. It didn't have a predetermined notion of how they wanted to interpret what was happening in the world. But within the last six months, specifically since the new bosses took over from their merger with Discovery, I've seen an absolutely massive shift in the way that CNN covers not just political events, but everything. I'm seeing talking points that have no business being on a reputable news network, but instead would be more at home in places like Infowars or The Daily Caller or Breitbart being openly pushed by CNN anchors. More importantly, I've seen voices that have previously been known to be critical of people like Donald Trump and Mitch McConnell and Kevin McCarthy basically being purged from the ranks of CNN. And I'll go into more detail on all these things later on in the show, but before I get to that, I want to give a very brief sort of history lesson about bias in the news and conservative media in general and how it sort of came to be the way it is today. So that's right, folks, this is another history lesson episode, but don't worry, it's not going to last the entire show, and I do have a point that I'm getting to at the end of this, so please bear with me. So bias in the press has really been around since the printing press was originally invented. The first real advocate for freedom of the press was a guy named John Milton, who wrote a piece called Areopagitica, I think that's how it's pronounced, in 1644. It was basically a pamphlet that argued for licensing of printing presses, free expression by said licensed printing presses, and punishment of libel by any of those printers who said anything bad about anybody without proof. But the thing is, as soon as mass distribution of writing became feasible, so did the idea of propaganda. And as you might expect, propaganda has been around for, as I said, as long as the printing press has. And propaganda can be a good thing. For example, when Thomas Paine mass-distributed common sense before the American Revolution, that was propaganda, and it was generally considered to be a good thing because it was a major sort of catalyst in the beginning of the American Revolution in sort of fermenting the thought of having an independent nation from Britain. But it wasn't really until the 19th century that what we would now call journalistic ethics became a thing. And it was at this point in the late 19th century that you had the rise of the first real news organizations, such as the New York Times, for example. But even so, even with this journalistic ethics coming into being, we still had conservative and liberal newspapers even back in the beginning. And of course, as they do today, it was pretty common of them to accuse each other of bias against the other side. So in other words, things haven't even really changed much since we started doing news. It's just become more easily visible now thanks to the advent of things like television and the internet. But even so, there wasn't really much regulation from the government in terms of what could or couldn't be printed at this point. The need for regulation really came and sort of made itself visible 
with the advent of radio specifically, but also television a little bit later on. Because what radio allowed for was the instant, unregulated transmission of whatever the person who had the radio tower wanted to say. It meant that anyone with a station could broadcast their views and attack whatever people or positions or politics that they wanted to without any repercussions or other points of view being presented. It was sort of an early version of the bubble, if you will. And so obviously the FCC, which was created after radio really sort of came into the mainstream, came to realize that this was not a feasible way of things to be done. There had to be some form of regulation on content. So with this in mind, in 1941, the FCC established what was called at the time the Mayflower Doctrine. I believe it was named after a radio station that got sued or was suing. And what it did was that it specifically stopped stations from being able to editorialize on the radio. And obviously this did not go over well with politicians or radio operators on either side. And if we're being honest, it really was a product of the times because, as you might have guessed, in 1941, we kind of had other things going on, namely being part of a world war. And we were smack in the middle of it, and the government sort of took full control of the airwaves to bolster the war effort. But an interesting little tidbit about the Mayflower Doctrine is that the FCC chair who passed it at the time worried in public that without some sort of regulation, media would become, and this is, I'm quoting him directly here, commercialized, conservative biased, and corporate dominated. So it's clear to me that even 80 years ago, people were worried about what unregulated media could become and about the potential existence of what we would now call the conservative media bubble. So rather than make rules to try and deal with it or sort of make people have to face the facts, the FCC at the time, while also dealing with the World War, basically just said, we don't want to have to deal with it at all, so you cannot editorialize on the radio. Again, a product of the times, it sort of makes sense from that perspective, but obviously nowadays, if you look at it, the first thing you think to yourself is, well, you can't do that. That's just a violation of the First Amendment. And that's ultimately what ended up happening, especially after the war ended and people started realizing, oh, wait, we can't broadcast our political views on the radio anymore. Broadcasters began to frame the Mayflower Doctrine as a violation of the First Amendment. And as I said, they were right. And the FCC eventually agreed with them. So in 1949, they abandoned the Mayflower Doctrine and decreed that radio stations could not use their airtime for private interest, but rather should be serving the community generally. And with this in mind, the FCC created what was called the Fairness Doctrine. The Fairness Doctrine basically stated that there were two rules for all public broadcast stations with regard to talking about politics. Rule number one was that they had to provide adequate coverage of political issues and opposing views on these political issues on both sides. And rule number two was that all radio stations who did this also had to provide airtime 
in these segments for citizens to reply directly to said issues. So to put it simply, the Fairness Doctrine forced radio stations talking about politics to air both sides of the issue and let people listening call in and ask about it. So on paper, this actually seems like a really good idea. Basically saying, if you want to talk about politics in the public square, there needs to be awareness of both sides of the issue. But, like all media laws, really, it definitely had its issues. For one, while it technically allowed editorializing on the radio now, there had to be similar editorializing on the other side. Which, again, sounds great. But not every radio station could find the people to do that. So a lot of times they ended up just abandoning politics altogether anyway because they weren't able to provide both sides' discussions on the issues. And also, and probably more importantly, people could lose their license without ever having editorialized because of a perceived bias or unfairness to one side or the other. And this sort of loophole in the law was admittedly used by liberal administrations to keep right-wing broadcasters off the air with expensive litigation. Basically, they'd say, either you stop broadcasting right-wing propaganda, or we're going to sue the hell out of you and just bog you down in court and you won't be able to do anything. In other words, liberal administrations, and specifically the Kennedy administration, actually used the Fairness Doctrine as a weapon to harass their political opponents. And it didn't help that most uses of the Fairness Doctrine tended to be against conservative stations. And oftentimes, these stations would be pushing segregationist or racist or Christian nationalist views. So in a way, a rule that was originally supposed to be implemented to help both sides ended up only really hurting one side and helping the other. But admittedly, there seemed to be a purpose behind it. And that was, as I said earlier, specifically to prevent the rise of what we would now call the conservative media bubble. It would seem then that even since the beginning of nationally syndicated media, liberals have been working hard not to let something like that form. And this is why, going into a bit of personal opinion here, although I support what the Fairness Doctrine was trying to do, I still believe that it was the wrong way to go about doing it. Because as much as I disagree with reasonable and even some unreasonable conservative viewpoints, this is America. We have the First Amendment. And as much as I disagree with them, they deserve their say just as much as I do. That's what a true democracy is all about. It's about coming together, even when we have different points of view, to find common ground. Because a lot of times, the answer to the far left is not the right solution. The answer to the far right is not the right solution. The true answer, the best way that we can get things done, is generally somewhere in the middle. I tend to think that it's more towards the left, but that's just my opinion. And I can voice my opinion just like someone who thinks that things should be more right-wing can voice their opinion. And what the Fairness Doctrine did was to sort of force people into both sidesism, basically saying that because we had both sides of the political spectrum, 
they were both entitled to their equal share of airtime, which, as I said, is a good idea. But the problem with that approach, and what I really want to get into here, is that although right-wingers certainly deserve a platform from which to voice their opinions, what they don't deserve and what they should not be able to have is their own reality. And this is exactly what has happened since the Fairness Doctrine was abolished, and I'll go into that more later when I talk about CNN. But for now, we had the Fairness Doctrine. And it was in this time frame, while the Fairness Doctrine was still intact, that CNN first came into being. It was known then as an unbiased, accurate, and constant stream of news coverage with really little interest in political posturing. Ted Turner simply created a network that reported the news all the time from everywhere. And for a while, that's exactly what it was. But starting in the 1970s, as I mentioned in the first episode of this podcast, we had the rise of people like Jerry Falwell and the Moral Majority. Basically, charismatic conservative Christians using their platform as big televangelists to spread conservative political ideals to their congregations. And so when the GOP and conservatives realized that they could use this platform as a way to implement their policies into government, they realized that there was more than just the potential for this. They could actually have their own media empire from which they could push conservative views onto their viewers. But the problem with this approach at the time was that the fairness doctrine had to be adhered to. So in other words, if conservatives wanted to start a specifically conservative political news network, there also had to be an equal amount of liberal coverage on said network. And so what conservatives and the GOP decided to do was to just simply get rid of the fairness doctrine. So over the next 15 years, they populated the FCC with conservatives, specifically after Ronald Reagan became president. And in 1987, under the leadership of the four Republican board, three of which had been appointed under Reagan, ended the primary requirements of the Fairness Doctrine. Their explanation was that it hurt public interest and violated the First Amendment. A quote from the ruling says that it restricted journalistic freedom and inhibited the presentation of controversial issues of public importance. And realizing what happened now, more than 30 years later, what they really meant by that, of course, was that the Fairness Doctrine inhibited right-wing presentation of issues without rebuttal or fact-checking. And the repeal of the Fairness Doctrine did not go over well with Congress which at the time, I believe, was still mainly controlled by the Democrats. And so they tried to codify the Fairness Doctrine into law, sort of in a similar way that today's Democrats are now trying to codify Roe v. Wade. But it got vetoed by Reagan and didn't go anywhere from there. And so the Fairness Doctrine was finally repealed, and conservatives were free to basically put out whatever disinformation they wanted to. And almost immediately after the Fairness Doctrine got repealed, the country was introduced to Rush Limbaugh. Rush was really 
the OG conservative commentator. He was highly racist, highly sexist, highly conspiratorial, and unapologetically Christian conservative nationalist. He was known for such things as when a black caller called into his show, he said, take that bone out of your nose and call me back. And of course, later on, he'd make the infamous comment of, why is it called the NBA? They should call it the Thug Basketball League. But the point is, before the Fairness Doctrine was repealed, someone like Rush Limbaugh would never have been able to get syndication on any radio station, let alone being syndicated nationally. Almost immediately after the Fairness Doctrine was repealed, Rush Limbaugh got signed to national syndication. And the company that did it offered his show to stations across the country for free. All he asked for was for a little bit of ad time that he'd sell to various companies. But because of this admittedly incredible deal, Rush Limbaugh was now a nationally syndicated radio host. And without the Fairness Doctrine, there was no mechanism to stop people like Rush Limbaugh from propagating, spreading disinformation and hate, and basically just doing whatever they wanted on the radio without any sort of repercussions. And Rush Limbaugh obviously became massively successful because of this. And when conservatives saw how successful Rush Limbaugh was, as opinionated and racist and sexist as he was, they started saying, you know what? If he can do it, we can do it. And so with Rush's success came the creation of even more conservative outlets, mainly Fox News in 1996, which was followed, of course, by a slew of imitators, and it hasn't really stopped since then. The bubble has just become more and more prevalent, more and more prominent, and is now the driving force behind political action in the Republican Party. Although I should mention that liberal media also did become a thing with networks such as MSNBC, but it didn't stick nearly as much. And I think the reason for this is because the people who came on conservative radio and TV tended to be very loud, charismatic, bombastic personalities. And that, to the average viewer, was a lot more appealing to watch and to listen to than the more nuanced and logical coverage that you'd see on liberal channels. There were exceptions to this, of course. Keith Olbermann and Rachel Maddow, for example, come to mind for me. But there really is no liberal bubble, so to speak. No matter what conservative outlets might want you to think. And the reason for this is because liberals, just as a whole, tend to look at the facts as they are rather than as they like them to be, or in the case of the conservative media bubble, just making up facts to fit your narrative. And so that's where we are today, with the conservative media bubble just propagating whatever it wants to, with no real way of stopping them because there's no fairness doctrine anymore. So you might be asking yourself, after this little history lesson, where does CNN fit into this, and why am I talking about them today? As you're probably aware, CNN does not fit into the conservative media bubble. In fact, they're one of the networks that the conservative media bubble uses to try and demonize the other side, saying that they're fake news and that they're just 
a plant of the Democrats to spread their disinformation and lies. But the thing is, rather than this sort of liberal paradise that the bubble tries to paint CNN as, historically, rather than trying to fit into the liberal or conservative mold, for most of their existence, CNN has really kind of shied away from overly political coverage. And in my opinion, this is due to the fact that they came into being during the Fairness Doctrine era when they literally had to be that way by law. But as politicized coverage of news stories became more popular after the repeal of the Fairness Doctrine, CNN started wading into it in mainly the late 2000s and throughout the 2010s out of necessity. And the reason they needed to do it was because they were losing viewership. Because more coverage and viewership of an overtly political nature being on the air meant that more people would go to these other networks seeking confirmation bias. So, in other words, the existence of left-wing and right-wing media made people want to go to those networks to reaffirm their own beliefs rather than be challenged by someone else's opinions. And again, this was one of the main reasons why the Fairness Doctrine was adopted in the first place, was to prevent networks like Fox, and admittedly like MSNBC, from basically pushing out stories that only benefited their narrative and their political views without having something to counter it that everyone would be able to see. So that's really why we have so much polarization in our political media today. Because it just became popular because that's what everyone wanted to see. But with regards to CNN, for most of this time, they were largely seen as sort of the center station. They weren't really politically liberal, weren't really politically conservative. They just reported the news. But certain things happening in the 2010s really sort of fueled their drift over to the left, specifically Donald Trump running for president in 2016. And admittedly, once Donald Trump became the front runner and eventually the nominee and the president, their coverage became very critical of him and the party that supported him. And I would argue that this was out of necessity of trying to save our democracy. But that's not the point I'm trying to make here. But what CNN did do in covering Trump so much, even critically, was to give Trump and his viewpoints free airtime and discussion. And so there actually stemmed a pretty big controversy from this, from CNN's arguably overly excessive coverage of Donald Trump during his campaign. And I can even remember watching their coverage of his rallies back in 2016. And there was one in particular that I remember in which Trump was an hour and a half late coming on stage. And CNN spent the entire time with the camera on the microphone waiting for him and just talking about him for that whole hour and a half. I believe with no commercial breaks, if I remember correctly. So as a result, there was a huge backlash basically saying that CNN helped elect Donald Trump because they gave him so much free airtime. And you can agree or disagree with that assessment, but the president of CNN at the time, Jeff Zucker, 
defended this behavior by saying that the reason they covered Trump so much was because he was simply more willing to give live interviews than any of the other candidates. So they just went with it. He also said that he tried to treat election coverage like one would treat sports media. For example, inside the NBA covering a basketball game. Basically saying, we treated each debate and event and rally like a sporting event where we might have pregame shows with opposing viewpoints. But the problem with this approach, and this has been brought up by more than just myself, is that CNN, by doing this, just ended up being a free platform for conservative talking points to be heard, even if they were being approached critically. As Donald Trump, I'm sure, would agree, there is no such thing as bad publicity when you're trying to get your message out to as many people as possible. But Trump didn't see it that way. He saw it as simply CNN being disloyal and only providing negative coverage for him. So, when Trump became president, allegations came out that Trump was actually trying to pacify CNN and their coverage of him by stopping its impending buyout by AT&T. It basically amounted to blackmailing CNN by killing the deal if they didn't give him more positive coverage. And at the time, the Daily Caller, which, by the way, is a conservative news organization inside the bubble, said that Trump was specifically seeking to remove Zucker as president because he thought he was responsible for all this negative coverage. And at the time, even with this, there were also antitrust concerns about an already massive media conglomerate in AT&T purchasing CNN and its national reach. And I already discussed how the Fairness Doctrine was put in place partially to avoid a conservative corporate takeover of media. Not to say that AT&T is conservative or liberal, but that sort of fear of having too few people control too much of the airwaves was definitely still there even during this controversy. And I should note that at the time, CNN's ratings were plummeting and its value was plummeting and it definitely needed some help. And so as a compromise, the buyout did eventually go through. Trump didn't stop it. And Turner Broadcasting, the original company that made CNN, was effectively dissolved. And CNN itself eventually ended up as part of Time Warner's entertainment division after which it was subsequently divested by AT&T and scooped up by Discovery when they bought Time Warner to become Warner Discovery. And at the same time all this was happening, Jeff Zucker, who had been behind the overcoverage of Trump and the politicization of CNN, had to step down earlier this year after a sex scandal. And so the result of all this happening is that CNN is now under the umbrella of Warner Discovery, and it needs a new boss. And with this necessity, we come to the person who is the main focus of our story today. His name is Chris Licht. He's been in news media for almost 30 years, and he's probably best known as the longtime producer of Morning Joe, 
which is MSNBC's sole remaining conservative program run by Joe Scarborough. In doing research on him, I came across lots of stories and anecdotes from a lot of different people about how he acted and how he did business, but probably the most notable ones came from Keith Olbermann's podcast regarding his time at MSNBC. And before I go into that, I should mention that Keith Olbermann always introduced Chris Licht on his podcast as the guy who, when I worked at MSNBC with him, I thought he ate paste. So while I do believe the essence of the stories that he's telling here, you should definitely take them with a grain of salt because he's clearly a bit biased. But anyway, the general consensus of the stories that Olbermann has told about him seem to be that he advocated very hard for more conservative coverage on MSNBC and the other neutral channels he worked for. In his podcast, Olbermann said that Chris Licht essentially banned guests from his show because he didn't like their political views, and specifically lobbied against him being on MSNBC and later Rachel Maddow being on MSNBC. He also says that later on, Chris Licht tried to manipulate news outlets into making Keith look desperate to be back on TV. So just from these stories, we've already painted a picture of a guy who very much seems to have a political agenda and tries to undermine people who don't agree with it. But I should mention that he has, at least publicly, committed to restoring CNN's hard news reputation and try and curb the spread of sensationalism. Specifically, he's cited that he's going to be using the breaking news banner way less and focusing less on overtly political issues. In other words, he says that he's trying to get CNN back to what it used to be before it got politicized, which was just a straight-up news channel. He's publicly advocated for dialing back partisanship on the air and getting back to real fact-based stories. But, as the old saying goes, actions speak louder than words. And Chris Lick's actions have been, since he was hired, head-scratching to say the least. The signs started coming in August with the sudden and at the time unexplainable canceling of its longest-running show. Brian Stelter, the host of Reliable Sources, which again was the longest-running show on CNN and had been running on Sundays for more than 30 years, was let go with almost no notice. They literally gave him a single day to get all his stuff in order and do one more show so that he could say goodbye. But the way he did this, the way he signed off on his last day, was not only a sign-off for the ages, but also served as a warning for what was about to come. So here's a little bit of that sign-off for you to get an idea. This is a really, really unusual day. TV networks rarely have a show like this, a show all about the media. And networks, even more rarely, cancel a show but still let it have one more live episode. I don't know if I've ever seen this happen before, okay? So here we are, together, in a super strange situation. So let's talk about it, okay? No one from CNN management has reviewed my script ahead of time. They have no idea what I want to say. I am just that kid who loves television and loves the internet and thinks that these are incredibly powerful forces in our society and believes that we need to interrogate that power and face it head on and figure out how to make these tools work for us and not against us. 
That's what it's all about, right? That's what reliable sources have been about. It's documented and dissected the changing media world for 30 years. I mean, we're living through an era of dizzying change. We have supercomputers in our pocket. We are all members of the media now. That's probably the biggest change that's happened while this show was on the air. And by the way, that's why it's loony to say the media is the enemy of the people. The media is the people. People are flawed and opinionated and curious and hopeful and believing in accountability. And that's the watchword here. Accountability. We need to have room for media criticism and debate and discussion, and we will. So much of the media ecosystem in 2022 is garbage, but so much of it is spectacular. The hard part sorting out the treasure from the trash. These are thorny, complicated things. I know I didn't, never had all the answers. I didn't even always have all the questions. But it was the gift of a lifetime to get to confront these issues on international television with the backing of CNN. Here's what I do know. I know it's not partisan to stand up for decency and democracy and dialogue. It's not partisan to stand up to demagogues. It's required. It's patriotic. We must make sure we don't give platforms to those who are lying to our faces. But we also must make sure we are representing the full spectrum of debate and representing what's going on in this country and in this world. But it's going to be on you to hold CNN accountable. And not just CNN. You've got to hold your local paper accountable. You've got to hold your local digital outlet accountable. It's on all of us. We are all members of the media, all helping to make it better. That's what I believe. So in addition to just an absolutely beautiful, epic ending to a 30-year-long show, what Brian Stelter is saying here is essentially that CNN is fundamentally changing and we as the viewers need to hold it accountable. And it's clear to me that even though Stelter was the first of many victims of Chris Lick's new policies, he definitely saw the writing on the wall in the beginning and had this statement prepared in case they decided to purge him, which of course they did. But after Brian Stelter got fired, Licht then fired John Harwood, one of CNN's veteran anchors, again with literally no warning. The first anyone knew of it was from a very depressed-looking Twitter post in all lowercase, basically just saying, this is my last day at CNN, very proud of the people I've worked with, thank you for watching. After the firing of John Harwood, there were then shakeups at nearly every single level of programming at CNN. Longtime nighttime host Don Lemon suddenly got shifted to the morning hour with Poppy Harlow and Caitlin Collins, who's formerly of the Daily Caller. Jake Tapper will take his place in the evening hour. Jake Tapper's position as a midday anchor will be replaced by Brianna Kyler. Chris Licht then hired John Miller, who is a former NYPD officer who had to resign after lying about the NYPD's Muslim surveillance program and is a known conspiracy theorist and right-winger as CNN's chief law enforcement correspondent. There was lots of other movement with lesser anchors as well, but these are the ones that I wanted to talk about specifically because I think it's important that these are the ones that get mentioned with regards to what they said and did on air. So in that case, you might be asking yourself, why is this important? Why are these specific anchors important? And what does this have to do with the conservative media bubble and how CNN has fundamentally changed? Well, what I haven't mentioned yet is that these moves 
that Chris Licht made in the last couple of months all came after certain things were said and or done on air. Brian Stelter's firing, for example, came as the result of being a longtime harsh critic of Fox News and Trump in particular. And again, Reliable Sources was not a politically inclined show. It was basically just taking other sources and trying to hold them accountable for lying or pushing false narratives. Again, this is a good thing. This is something that every news network should strive to have. And they canceled it because it was critical of Donald Trump, the GOP, and Fox News. John Harwood was fired literally a couple of hours after saying during an on-air report that Trump was an extremist threat to the nation. Don Lemon had done multiple in-depth pieces on Trump's threat to democracy, his ties to Russia, and the GOP's overall embrasure of fascism and Christian nationalism. And now, at the point of recording today, there's word going around that Jim Acosta, who is one of CNN's last remaining openly liberal anchors, will soon be fired as well. The people who didn't get fired, meanwhile, seem to have taken a vastly different approach to their reporting over the last couple of months. Brianna Kyler, for example, who's replacing Jake Tapper in the midday news hour, wrote an article and reported live on Biden's use of the military during his speech last month. She said that the optics of having service members in the background during the speech undermined his message and made him look dictatorial. I should remind you that I heard these literal exact talking points on Tucker Carlson, Sean Hannity, and other conservative outlets the day after Biden's speech. And by the way, I'm referring to Biden's speech in which he basically called MAGA Republicans a threat to democracy. The one with all the apparently sinister red lighting. And yes, there were two Marines standing in the background of the speech. But that is not without precedent. Pretty much every president that I can think of has, at some point in their political career, had members of the armed forces standing behind them during a political speech. It's not that unusual. And honestly, I think it sort of underscored the message that Biden was trying to send, which is, our literal democracy is at stake. But you didn't hear that from Brianna Kyler. She basically just badmouthed Biden for making the decision to have these Marines in the background, even though for a lot of the different outlets that were covering the speech, they weren't even visible in the frame. It didn't matter. She reported on it, said it was a bad thing, and that Biden should be ashamed of it. Poppy Harlow, who's going to be doing the morning show with Don Lemon, straight up demanded that Biden's spokesperson apologize to Republicans for calling Trump supporters semi-fascists. Jake Tapper, who's replacing Don Lemon in the evening news hour, criticized MSNBC for attacking his reporting that the special master ruling in the Mar-a-Lago case was legitimate. As we know now, and has been determined by a federal appeals court, it wasn't. Erin Burnett, who actually kept her job as an afternoon news anchor, did a five-minute in-depth piece on Hunter Biden's laptop from hell as reported by New York Magazine. 
And it's not just these people, even apolitical correspondents in the field and doing other reporting on regular news shows, started literally quoting directly from GOP talking points with regards to the news and political happenings in the United States. A notable example of this was when Dr. Sanjay Gupta came on during the midday news hour to do what I can only describe as a hit piece on Democratic senatorial candidate John Fetterman, who had a stroke and is in recovery, speculating that he might have been permanently brain damaged by the stroke and saying that maybe he's not the kind of person that people would want to be legislating if his mental faculties aren't all there. This piece was widely regarded by pretty much anyone who wasn't CNN as being mocking, negative, and basically just a political hit job on John Fetterman. I should also mention that in my research of all these stories, I saw that all of them, all of these actions by CNN anchors, got ample coverage in the conservative media bubble. Most of this was reporting that people were tired of CNN's liberal bias and that the new boss, Chris Licht, was finally doing something about it. In other words, the conservative media bubble was applauding all these moves and basically saying, yeah, fake news CNN is starting to trend in the right direction. But regardless of why these things happened, I feel like I've definitely seen a pattern at CNN since Chris Lick took over. And that pattern is that anyone who says bad things about Trump, the GOP, or conservative media is eventually if not immediately, let go or demoted. On the flip side, those who praise Trump, or more importantly, parrot conservative talking points and bash liberal ones, get rewarded with better positions. And I should also mention that while some of CNN's most popular reporters, such as Wolf Blitzer and Anderson Cooper, remain at CNN as of this recording, their presence definitely seems to be diminished from where it was, let's say, a year or two ago. From what I saw, and I've been watching CNN on and off in the past month to prepare more for this episode, the Situation Room, which is Wolf Blitzer's show that runs for two hours on weekdays, has had guest hosts on more often than him in the past month. If you ask me, it seems like they're trying to phase him out. Anderson Cooper, meanwhile, has taken to doing more in-depth news stories rather than overtly political ones as he used to in the past. Laying low, so to speak, to basically just say, you know, I'm just going to do my job and not cause any trouble with the new boss. I want to keep my job. And that's really what it comes down to with a lot of these people sort of changing their tune to become more pro-Trump and less liberal. What I see happening is People like Jake Tapper and Brianna Kyler and Anderson Cooper to a lesser degree, basically saying, I want to keep my job at CNN and or I want to get promoted in my job at CNN, so I'm going to do what the boss wants. And it's clear to me that the boss wants more conservative talking points and less liberal talking points in CNN's coverage of events. I've heard the term Fox News light being tossed around to describe CNN's current state of affairs. And while that term does encompass what's been happening, I honestly don't really think it's accurate. 
Rather, to me, it looks as though CNN is having just a major internal identity crisis. And the result of that is that a conservative coup is being orchestrated over the way that CNN does news by Chris Licht. And I mean, that's just my perception, but whatever the case may be, it's definitely clear to me that Chris Licht is sending a message to every CNN anchor. And that message is that if you report more conservative viewpoints and less liberal ones, you get to keep your job. And it's kind of ironic to me that Chris Licht, in his initial statement after he got hired as president of CNN, said, we're going to focus less on being political and more on just the news and a place where both Democrats and Republicans can come to get news that's not skewed. Because if he was actually doing that, that would be, in my opinion, a noble effort and I would support it. But that doesn't seem to be what's happening here. All I've seen happening so far is that anyone who espouses liberal views gets demoted or fired. Anyone who espouses conservative views gets promoted. And the result of this is an absolute mess of a news network. CNN, under Chris Licht in the last six months, has become nothing more than a mishmash of diminishing liberal views, rising conservative news, and occasionally they'll throw in a story about Ukraine or something like that that could qualify as a real news story. And of course, the ratings, which was one of the main reasons why all these buyouts happened in the first place, have not improved. In fact, I'm not the only one that's noticed CNN's sudden lurch to the right. And the hashtag boycott CNN has caught fire on Twitter many times. And because of this boycott, it's resulted in ratings plummeting since Chris Lick took over. Oh, how the mighty have fallen. CNN is now a shell of its former self, being run into the ground by its new conservative boss. So why is this happening? Why is CNN all of a sudden trying and failing to become part of the conservative media bubble? And to answer that, I can't mention Chris Licht without mentioning his boss, the CEO of Discovery and Warner Media, David Zaslav. After all, his personal and close relationship with Chris Licht was cited as the main reason why he was hired at CNN as the boss. After acquiring CNN, Zaslav said he wanted to mold CNN into a news organization, quote, for both Republicans and Democrats. He said that America needs a news network where everyone can be heard. And because of that, we're not going to look at the ratings when we decide what changes to make. And the problem with this approach, as the New York Post of all people reported in July, is that you need ratings and viewers to survive as a network. The New York Post article actually quotes a source they say is deep inside CNN, who says, quote, Everyone is freaking out. Management doesn't realize that shows and ratings are connected. And I should also mention that the article almost takes glee in reporting CNN's abysmal ratings since the change, but again, that is a pretty common staple of the conservative diet, that if anything embarrassing happens to any news network outside the bubble, they have to report on it like it's the greatest thing ever. But even looking at Chris Lick's boss and how he said he was going to run things, 
doesn't really explain why they're doing what they're doing. Again, if they were indeed trying to make a straight-up news network for both sides to watch, they wouldn't be making these moves that they're making. And so I decided to look into it further. And it turns out all I needed to do was look up. Specifically, to Discovery's owners and shareholders, who, as I said earlier, is now the company that owns CNN. Turns out the majority shareholder in Discovery is a man named John Malone. If you haven't heard the name before, here's a little bit of information about him. He sits on Warner's Discovery's board of directors, even though he is the majority shareholder. He's worth around $9 billion. He is the founder and majority shareholder of Liberty Media and Liberty Global, which owns Warner Discovery, as well as large stakes in multiple other TV providers and media companies, including, for a long time, Fox News. And finally, he's a known political libertarian who's on the board of directors for the Cato Institute, which is a conservative think tank founded by one of the Koch brothers. So when you take all this information about John Malone and put it together with what's been happening at CNN in the last couple of months, it seems like a pretty easy conclusion to make that John Malone is influencing exactly what happens at CNN to make it more conservative. And this explanation makes more sense when you see that after Warner Discovery took control of CNN earlier this year, John Malone himself said publicly that they should look to Fox News as a model for rebranding CNN. So with this in mind, it stands to reason that Chris Licht takes orders from David Zaslav, and David Zaslav takes orders from John Malone. In other words, it seems to me like Malone has achieved a conservative corporate takeover of CNN and is trying to turn it into a more conservative network. I obviously have no way of proving this other than through the actions of Chris Licht and the new, admittedly strange direction that CNN's reporting is taking. But in any case, I used to use CNN's reporting on issues as my measuring stick for what was real versus what was perceived in places like the conservative media bubble. And obviously, with this new ownership group in place and the direction to the right that CNN's reporting is taking, I can't do that anymore. And honestly, I stopped watching CNN as a news network after Stelter was fired. But to see its downfall in real time and its subsequent conservative corporate takeover, an action that things like the Fairness Doctrine were designed to prevent, is truly sad to me. I'm honestly a little bit heartbroken seeing what's happened to the once mighty CNN over the last couple of months. And I worry about where it's going to go in the future, under the leadership of Chris Licht. And that leads me to the whole point that I'm trying to make with this entire episode. Because by now you're probably asking yourself, what does any of this have to do with the conservative media bubble? After all, even now that CNN is being forced to the right by its new owners, they still aren't taken seriously by the bubble. In fact, Trump filed a lawsuit against CNN last month, citing their biased reporting against him and wanting to take from them $500 million. But anyway, I believe 
the whole point of what's happening to CNN isn't so much to force it into the bubble, but to make the bubble appear more legitimate to everyone else. How would they do this? It's pretty simple. CNN's new direction under Chris Licht is to provide a place for both Republicans and Democrats to make their voices heard. This is coming directly from the horse's mouth here. But even if he did this exact thing, which, by the way, so far he hasn't, he's just been punishing the liberal anchors, it would advance the narrative of the bubble in a way that they wouldn't have been able to before. Because in order to have this fair and balanced approach to reporting, Chris Licht would have to implement something akin to the fairness doctrine. In other words, giving each side equal time and giving people a chance to respond and debate the issues at hand. If he did this, the conservative viewpoints that he would present in this arena would have to come from somewhere. And now, because the conservative media bubble has basically propagated the entire right wing of the United States, they would have to draw their opinions from the bubble itself. So what CNN would be doing in this instance would be, at the very least, lending an air of legitimacy to conservative media. Ironically, in sort of the same way that they lent an air of legitimacy to Donald Trump's candidacy when they covered it so much in 2016. But I think a better example of this happening would be in Aaron Burnett's Hunter Biden laptop piece that I mentioned earlier. I've mentioned multiple times on this show that the story about Hunter Biden's laptop from hell has been both fact-checked and debunked by multiple nonpartisan sources over a number of years. They found that, yes, the laptop did belong to Hunter Biden, but A, nothing malicious or illegal was on it, and B, more importantly, there were things on that laptop that were planted, at least date-stamped, after he dropped it off in the shop. And the official conclusion was that it was likely Russian disinformation that had been planted on the laptop. And yet, even with all this information available on why that story was a big nothing burger, she reported on it as though it were actual news. So even if we give Aaron Burnett the benefit of the doubt here, and say that she's just trying to frame both sides of the issue, it doesn't matter, because the damage is already done. There cannot be two sides to an issue when one of those sides isn't based in reality. And this, to me, is exactly the point of John Malone buying this network and hiring a yes-man to run it. CNN, under this new banner, can now serve as sort of the laundering operation that makes the conservative bubble's reality real. Because if CNN, this reputable mainstream news source, is reporting the things that the bubble is talking about, that must mean that the stories are legitimate. The bubble can wear this reporting on CNN as a badge of pride to their viewers and tell them, see, even fake news CNN is reporting that these stories are real, so there must be some truth to it. And this provides more opportunities for fringe views to come into the mainstream of the political discourse, which I think was the real goal all along. 
as I've said many times on this show, the goal of the American conservative movement at this point in time is the ultimate dismantling of liberal democracy and free thought. And control over the media is instrumental to this effort. CNN's shift to the right is proof of that, especially since Chris Licht is still attempting to keep the company's reputation as a hard news source intact. Because he knows, and David Zaslav knows, and John Malone knows, and everyone in conservative media knows, that people seeing conservative viewpoints as coming from a reputable news source means that they're more likely to accept them. And while this all sounds scary, the good news is that most people, even conservatives, don't seem to be falling for it. The boycott CNN movement has only grown since Chris Lick took over and shows no signs of slowing down, especially now that they're going to fire Jim Acosta and basically shuffle everyone's lineup to give more prominence to conservative viewpoints. Pundits on all sides, left and right, have blasted pretty much every move Chris Licht has made, and he's essentially made CNN the laughingstock of the news world. And their ratings, as I mentioned before, just keep going down. So while this is indeed part of a worrying trend of the conservative media bubble's talking points becoming mainstream, at this point, I think we can probably rest easy knowing that most of those outside the bubble are not being fooled and that all that Chris Licht has done since taking over at CNN is to chase viewers away from his network to Fox News and MSNBC. And I could talk more about the implications of this sort of hyperpolarization of more people going to the extreme right and left, but this episode is long enough already and it would kind of be off topic. So with that, I'll end my CNN segment, and let's move right along to this episode's Alex Jones Award. So before I show you what I'm about to show you, I do think that Kanye West and Herschel Walker definitely deserve honorable mentions here. Kanye West, for all his ridiculous anti-Semitism that he's been posting up in the last couple of weeks, and Herschel Walker for, obviously, the badge stunt. But as strange and out there as those things were, I guarantee they are not going to make you cringe as hard as what I'm about to show you. So as we know, we are now smack in the middle of midterm season. And so all the candidates are sending out their best political ads to try and convince the voters to vote for them. And in every election cycle, we always get some sort of weird political advertisement that makes the rounds on the internet and makes everyone have a good laugh. Probably the most notable recent example of this was the one where Marjorie Taylor Greene takes a Barrett 50 caliber sniper rifle and destroys a truck. But this political ad that I'm about to show you is not like that one at all. This episode's Jonesy goes to Linda Paulson. Linda is the Republican candidate for Utah's 12th Senate District. And like most Republican candidates today, Linda has very strong views about faith, woke culture, and transgender people. But it isn't her views that gets her today's Jonesy, but rather the way in which she presents them. You see, Linda is an older woman. She looks like she's in her 60s, maybe her early 70s. But she doesn't let that stop her from trying to get down with the young people. You see, every candidate always tries to connect with younger voters, with varying degrees of success or more likely failure. 
But Linda Paulson's attempt to do so is, in my opinion, destined for the history books. What you're about to hear is 100% real, folks. This is an actual political ad being aired in Utah's 12th Senate District. I won't give you any more introduction to it than that. Here you go. Enjoy. District 12, listen up right here. There's a new name on the ballot for the Senate this year. My name is Linda Paulson, Republican and awesome. Love God and family and the Constitution. I tried to get another conservative to run. Nobody could do it, so I'm getting it done. I'm pro-religious freedom, pro-life, pro-police. The right to bear arms and the right to free speech. I want less government control and regulation want to stop and expose all political corruption where's integrity morality accountability government programs should lead to self-sufficiency and support traditional family as the fundamental unit of society but in schools they're pushing for new beliefs and just to clarify as a female adult i know what a woman is This country, it's a blessing to be free, but freedom comes with responsibility. The Constitution needs to be protected, not changed or disregarded, but resurrected. If you share my values, if you like what I stand for, then give me your vote on the 8th of November. District 12 needs a choice. Let me be your voice, Linda Paulson. Linda Paulson for Senate. Look out, Kanye West. There's a new crazy conservative rapper in town. I mean, where to begin with this absolute masterpiece of a political ad? I could talk about the basic backbeat that sounds like it was thrown together in two minutes by a six-year-old. Although I gotta say, as a musician, I definitely dig the time signature change that we saw near the end. Especially combined with that emphasis on the fact that she's an adult woman and I know what an adult woman is. We could say that the change in time signature at that time represents sort of a microcosm of the message that she's trying to send about how trans people are screwing over our I don't even know what I'm saying here. I can't even wrap my head around this. I am just so amazed by how bad and how cringy this whole thing is in every aspect of it. Whether it's the actual rapping, which, I mean, to be fair, she is an older woman and doesn't have the best rapping voice, but she doesn't even try to stay on beat. Her lyrics not only don't rhyme, they don't even make sense from a rhythmic point of view. And the lyrics are basically just spewing out every single Republican talking point that we've seen from the bubble. That she loves God, she loves America, she loves the Constitution, she loves family, and she's here to stop the woke agenda. But honestly, I think the best part of this whole thing is the video itself. And I can't really do it justice describing it on a podcast, so I would highly recommend you go watch it. I'm going to be putting a link to the video on my Twitter account, at UCB underscore podcast. All I can say is that it looks like it was made by me when I was 10 years old on one of those free movie makers that you got back when you bought an operating system in the early 2000s. In other words, this video has both the production value and the overall vibe of free Windows Movie Maker. It's basically just some poorly shot video of Linda rapping along to the song, Badly Synced, combined with some photos from her campaign and from her personal life, many of which are blurry 
or overexposed or just straight up don't look very good. But the best part is that at the end of this video, when she's finally saying, so vote for me, she finishes this entire masterpiece with a dab. Hey, I'll bet if I do one of those dabbly do things, I bet the young people are gonna come out and vote for me in droves. So I can't really say anything about Linda the Candidate. I don't know much about her other than that she's a Republican and against trans people. But Linda, the music video maker and rapper, will definitely live on in infamy if the YouTube comments are anything to go by. Here's a few of my favorites. Eminem has been awfully quiet since this dropped. This track is so fire, it melted my second generation iPod shuffle. That's funny, I actually used to have one of those. This woman needs to do a front-to-back cover of The Chronic. The world needs, nay, demands to hear her take on Bitches Ain't Shit. This feels like a Better Call Saul commercial where one of his elder law clients was running for office. And finally, one of the people in the YouTube comment section definitely saw what I saw. Nothing screams, I'm in touch with things, like an AARP rapper. So congratulations to Linda Paulson, or should I say, Lil Peasy? In the heezy? The recipient of this episode's Alex Jones Award. And that concludes this episode of the Undercover Bubble Podcast. I'd like to thank you all for listening. If you liked it, feel free to subscribe and tell your friends. You can also follow my Twitter accounts, both for the podcast itself at UCB underscore podcast or my personal Twitter at Pimo the Music Man. Thanks again for listening, folks, and I'll see you next time. Have a good one.